This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. The 12th Annual Regional Refugee Forum was recently held in Christchurch, organized by the Canterbury Refugee Resettlement and Resource Centre. The theme was COVID-19 and responses. It was officially opened by the Honourable Leanne Dalziel, the Mayor of Christchurch. In a mana in a reo e rangatira ma tene te mihi ki a koutou i te kopapro te rā tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā ratato katoa. Uh, good morning and welcome, welcome everyone here. Uh, all of our special guests have been acknowledged, but I too wanted to acknowledge Ming Foon. When I heard that you were in the room, I was sort of looking around the first time and um, right, right at the back of the room, which um, says something about you as a person, but also um, a, a genuine leader. And uh, I want to acknowledge you as a former mayor, so uh, we understand each other's um, roles from um, a background, but how ideal to come from local government to go into the role of race relations. Commissioner, I know that you understand the significance and importance of um, uh, uh, taking advantage of the strength of diversity on the ground, and that's not something that central government can do from Wellington. It's actually what we can all own and do here in our local community. So, you know, welcome, very much welcome here to Autotahi Christchurch. Um, and, uh, and on behalf of my two council colleagues and myself, um, who are here in a representative capacity, but Councillor Jimmy Chen, who I know is known to all of you, um, and, and Councillor Ann Galloway, who sits alongside him uh, in the neighbouring um, constituency of um, Hallswell, but very much a part of the broader, diverse communities that make up our um, communities as a, as a community representative. So, um, and so together we welcome you to Te Hononā this morning. And our, our civic building has been gifted the name Te Hononā, and I was reflecting on this very recently because this building opened or reopened was repurposed from the old postal centre that it used to be, uh, but it opened as the um, uh, Christchurch City Council Civic Officers Te Hononā um, in August 2010. About a week later, there was an earthquake, which began the earthquake sequence, which probably, in its indirect way, led me to being here today to welcome you uh, to Te Hononga as the, as the Mayor of Christchurch. I'd like to thank my very old friend, near and dear friend Ahmed Tani for his comments this morning, but also for his tireless efforts in supporting our refugee communities um, and ensuring that there is a strong and active voice on behalf of all communities um, in that regard. The Refugee and Resource um, Centre uh, here in Christchurch has certainly uh, played a pivotal role uh, both in terms of our city's um, situation but also in terms of organising this important regional forum. So thank you very much for, for that. 
Um, it's an opportunity for all of us to come together and address the key issues facing those who arrived here as refugees and the challenges that many have had to confront in their daily lives as they resettle. And sometimes I think it's really important for those of us who don't have a resettlement story in our history just to remind ourselves that refugees flee their homes due to, and I want to quote from the convention, due to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political um, opinion. And I just want to reflect on that word persecuted. Have we forgotten what that means? Do we not understand the concept of people fleeing, that, that, that people cannot find protection in their own country? And I want to just briefly mention that. Um, I have... Um, I know many of the stories behind what made people refugees, and that's from my background of experience formerly as a Minister of Immigration. They are salutary reminders of the cruelty and inhumanity that can be imposed on entire peoples. I have met parents who fled their homes because they wanted their children to grow up free from fear, but more importantly, to live a good life, a life of purpose, not hiding in the shadows, not confined by their gender to no future um, of education, for example, and always, always feeling gratitude and a sense of an obligation to give back. And gosh, they have given back. They have given back many, many times over. And it hasn't been perfect for everyone who has sought refuge in New Zealand. However, for many, it has been a safe haven. Paradise on earth, I have heard it described. That sense of peace was shattered here in Christchurch on the 15th of March 2019. The fact that many of those who were killed that day had come as refugees made this even more shattering. The UN Convention, which came into effect 70 years ago this year, 1951, July, it's not far off that 70th anniversary, it framed our responsibility as a receiving nation, our nation, our obligation to refugees was one of protection, the protection they were denied in their own countries. As Ruby Jones wrote beneath her poignant image of a Muslim and non-Muslim woman hugging each other, this is your home and you should have been safe here. It is vital that we do everything that we can to reinstate that sense of protection. That's our collective obligation, that sense of peace and security, and not just from those that would commit such atrocity, but also from those whose prejudice, their prejudging of people by appearance, by, by religion, by um, all of the things that Fareed spoke of. Um, but also from that, that bias that will not allow former refugees and their children to seize the opportunities our city offers to be the best that they can be. And Fareed reminded me of one of the PM's challenges to us when she said that the events of the day proved that we were not immune to the virus of hate. And she put out the challenge, could we be the place that finds the cure? And I hope that we can. Um, 
The vision statement that has guided us as a council for the last two terms states Autotahi Christchurch is a city of opportunity for all, a place that is open to new ideas, new people and new ways of doing things, a place where anything is possible. I feel that our city is beginning to live up to that reputation. The adoption of the multicultural strategy in 2017 was a significant step for us. It speaks to the council's role as an organisation, but much more importantly, it speaks to a city of cultural vibrancy, diversity, inclusion and connection. That's that all-important sense of belonging. This is our place, our home. As a council, we advocated for our city to become a refugee resettlement relocation after an eight-year hiatus. Um, after the earthquake and we were pleased when that was reinstated and I understand that members of the Somali community um, are rejoining us uh, as well and haven't uh, for a very long time as part of the resettlement program so I'm very pleased to, um, to hear that. The COVID-19 environment which does bring me to the topic of your day, I, yeah sorry if I've gone on, um, but it's thrown another curveball our way and it's been particularly challenging for those you represent with closed borders, increased immigration restrictions, added levels of fear for family members back home and what COVID might mean for them and diminished employment opportunities as we've already heard um, Ahmed uh, touch on. The team of five million can take these on as well. And I kind of wanted to put that in there. The Prime Minister didn't differentiate uh, when she spoke of the team of five million. We're all part of it. At the same time, I'm also seeing so many opportunities emerging from our communities who are using the humanity and the compassion of the response to March 15 as the bedrock upon which we can help build a better place together. In common, the Sakina Trust, uh, the Christchurch inv invitation is to come. This forum is an opportunity for you to come together and discuss your concerns with key agencies, but also to look positively, affirmatively, optimistically to the future and the role that you can play. Um, you are of the people, for the people, and by the people, you are going to achieve so much. And it is on that note I wish to officially open this forum today. Norera tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā ratato katoa. Okay. Thank you. The end's had to go, which is a shame because she won't hear her brother speak. Anymore. <laughs> <laughs> she's, 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 heard, she's heard him talk all her life. <laughs> but... Um, Yes, and, and so just the next speaker on your program will be Dr Alistair Humphrey, who unfortunately has been held up elsewhere and can't come. So our next speaker will have to elevate himself up, and he's ready to do that, and that is Dr Paul Dalzell, who is, for some people who may not know, Leanne Dalzell's brother. So here, here is... Uh, another member of the Dalzell family, and Paul, in his own right, has been for over 35 years um, an economist in New Zealand, and dare I say, uh, with a very progressive 
and liberal approach to politi to uh, econ economics, with one based on justice for people and equity and those sorts of things, and of course being a realist in, 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 in the world of economy as well. So it's fantastic to have him as a good thinker, a good talker, and we welcome you now, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you very much, Patrick, and thank you everyone for the warmth of your welcome this morning. I'm very honoured to follow my sister Leanne in speaking to you now. Uh, Leanne first entered Parliament in 1990, so she has had more than 30 years of public service now, and you cannot be a public figure of that nature unless you have a very big heart and a very big brain. And Leanne has both of those, and the whole family are very proud of all that she has contributed to this country, and indeed globally in the various projects that she has been involved in. So uh, just today we were hearing that the OECD has joined the Christchurch Initiative. So the ripples that she has helped to spread around the world through her big heart and her big brain should be a source of pride to all of us in this city. Those of you who have heard me speak before know that I like to make my own mihi at the beginning, so let me do that. Inga tāne, inga wahine, e tōnei, tēnā koutou katoa. Ka tino nui taku mihi o araha kia koutou i tēnei rā. Kei te mihi ahau ki ngā tōnga katoa o kaitahu, takata whenua o tēnei rohe. Ka iti taku mōhia ki te reo Māori. Engari kei te mihi hahau ki tēnei tōnga o enei motu. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, ki ora tātou katoa. So I've been pleased to acknowledge Naitahu as tangata whenua of this place and to say that my knowledge of Te Reo is small but I honour this treasure of these islands and then I finish, that is you, that is you, may you and I, all of us together, enjoy well-being. Okay, so look, a little bit about me. That's me at the bottom of the picture. Okay, and that is my father. So that's 1961, and the next picture is my father at his first Christmas with his father. So that is my grandfather, Hugh Dalzell, and Hugh Dalzell migrated from Glasgow after his father died when he was about 14. And his father said to, so that's my great-grandfather, said to the oldest in the family, take the family to Dunedin, where his wife had a sister who had already migrated. And so the Dalzell family came to Dunedin, and there Hugh met Bertha, who was the daughter of migrants, she lived in central Otago, but had moved to Dunedin, and they met, and here they are both having their photos taken, I'm thinking on Christmas Day, 1933, because my father was born in October 1933, the 1st of October. Now, they look happy in those pictures, but in fact, life was really hard for them in 1933. So my grandmother 
The day that she announced that she was engaged to Hugh was her last day in the paid workforce for a long time. So in the norms of the day, once you became engaged as a woman, you were no longer able to continue your paid employment. So she had not worked for about 18 months when that photo was taken. And Hugh, when they married, was an apprentice in a woodwork shop. He was going to be a carpenter. And 1933, this was the Great Depression. So the office closed and he was made redundant in March that year. My father was born in October that year. And he did not have paid employment between March 1933 and sometime in 1939. So six years. So he has been unemployed for nine months when that photo was taken and he continued to be unemployed for till 1939. His job was actually a family business. He created a family business. 1940 was going to be 100 years of New Zealand, the 100th anniversary of the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi, we would say today, but I don't think that was the language in 1940. And they created a little sideshow that was going to be part of the big exhibition in Wellington as part of the centennial. And as he was constructing the sideshow, he had an industrial accident and he lost three fingers from one of his hands. And then war broke out. And so the centennial was a, a great flop and he lost all of the life savings that he had at that period in the time. And then two of his brothers did not come back from the war. They died in the same 48 hours um, in, uh, in Italy. His oldest brother came back to look after his mother and remained looking after her. He did not marry her, marry all his life. And so my grandfather and one of his brothers are the two that had children and lead Leanne and myself here today. So it was a difficult life, migrants coming to a new country. And a lot of the blows that he suffered, we can still see. And I think this is one of the reasons Leanne entered into public life and I became an economist, to try and understand the big forces that affect good people trying to create lives for their families and in their communities. Okay, so now COVID-19 and responses. So back in February 2018, we had our first case reported in this country. And within four weeks, we had moved from recognizing that this was a crisis to level four lockdowns. And following the words we heard at the beginning, our priority was to save lives. This was the public health response. This was the economic policy response. So the ways that we save lives focused on two big things. The first was public health that we may hear about yet from our public health officer in Canterbury. And it focused on how to keep people safe, how our behavior had to change in order to keep people safe. And the pictures you can see there on the left are just the latest example of that strategy. But secondly, economic policy focused on how to ensure people had access to income during the lockdowns. 
how could we ensure people had the resources to continue to do well during this time? So the wage subsidy is the, the best example of a large-scale policy designed to keep people well during the, the lockdowns. Now, I'm going to spend most of my talk about the COVID response, and so this explains the difficulties that were faced and the challenges that were met as a result of economic policy designed to save lives. So if I divide our lives into households, raising our families, and firms, which, which might be a family-owned firm, perhaps within the home, but this is where we make goods and services for sale in the marketplace. If I can make that distinction, then economists talk about a circular flow that begins with people in households providing work that is going to produce the goods and services in firms. And in return for that, they earn income. So we have a flow going this way in return for a flow going that way. The income that households earn, they then spend on food and shelter and clothing and recreation and cultural activities. And that spending is on the goods and services that have been produced. And so it's a circular flow. The economy is this dynamic flow of work and production, income and spending. And it just goes round and round and round. And this is what supplies the material aspects of the lives that we are creating together in community. Now, that sounds like it can carry on forever. Income being spent, spent producing income. The reason it doesn't go on forever is that not all income that is earned gets spent. People save some of their income for retirement or to buy their first home or for all sorts of reasons. And the role of the financial system then, the banking system, the share market and so on, is to make those savings available to firms to invest in new buildings, new factories, new plant and machinery, new roads and railways, new cars, new computers, all of these types of investment. And so there is income going to households. Some of it is directly back in the form of spending. Some goes down through this route. But this way the economy carries on. Now, if I think back to my grandfather's time in 1933, what happened then is what was similar to happened in 2008 in the global financial crisis. Basically, the finance sector got into all sorts of trouble. So in 1933, we had the share market crash and the financial sector collapsed and that fed the Great Depression that lasted for, well, until, until people started spending in preparation for global conflict. So the finance sector got into trouble in 2008. That meant that savings had nowhere to go. Firms couldn't borrow for investment. And so this was the crisis in 2008. And the government's response was, how can we repair the damage to the finance sector? 
How can we put guarantees so that people trust the finance sector with their savings again? How can we ensure that firms are able to obtain funds for investment so that this circular flow continues? Because until that happened, the whole economy was winding down. The experience we've just had during the COVID-19 crisis has been quite different. It's not the finance sector that has been in trouble. But if we think about people leaving home to go to work, during the lockdowns, that was not possible for many workers. So literally, the circular flow could not start with households providing workers to their workplace for large numbers of households throughout the country. And consequently, if everything had been left just to the economic system, firms would not have paid income for workers who were not coming to work. And so we have the two flows disrupted in a major way. So there's no income for some households who are not able to work, everything left to its own devices, and so there's no spending. They have no money. This was the experience of my grandparents. My grandmother told me the story that she was a Catholic and the priest would come sometimes on a Sunday and when he left the kitchen there would be a coin on the table. And that was their income for that month because there was no work, there was no social security, there were no benefits in those days. So spending is disrupted and firms are unable to have workers and customers are not spending and so production collapses. This was the threat in February, March last year, that the economy would break down. And different countries have coped with this in different ways. In New Zealand, we had an elimination strategy. So we were determined to break the COVID-19 spread. That meant we had to find a way to ensure households could continue to survive economically. So the wage subsidy scheme. Even if you weren't going to work, firms were paid a subsidy to keep you employed. So income was able to continue. There was an increase in benefits right at the beginning as a way to help people with extra expenses during the crisis. You know, children having to stay at home, having to heat the home for longer, all of these things. And as a result, the households were able to continue spending through online means and the like, and firms were able to keep on producing. Not as much as before, but enough. Essential workers were defined. So how can we ensure that people can work safely in the workplace if their work is essential? And we developed all of these new tools from working from home. So the crisis here was not so strong and there was still an impact. We, we reduced economic activity, but it got us through. It got us through in a way that didn't happen in 1933. So instead of a six-year Great Depression, we are living through what looks like it might be one or two years of major economic struggling, but not the disaster that it was in 1933. There have been economic consequences. So the government has paid out all of these subsidies. And as a consequence, it has borrowed 
against our children's incomes in order to meet the crisis. So this is a graph that started in 2011 and it's measuring the size of the government's debt, how much it has borrowed from us citizens in this country and normally the government aims to borrow about 20% of total production in New Zealand. So we, we produce goods and services worth a certain amount. The stock of debt owned by the government is about 20%. That's normal. Very cautious approach to debt. This is what has happened since the outbreak of COVID-19. So the government is borrowing in order to get us through. And that 20% figure is projected, well, it's already 40% in June this year, and it's projected to be 50%. So it's, it's borrowed twice as much as it normally does. But that's got us through, but there are implications. It means the government hasn't the same financial strength that it had two years ago for investing in education and health and the like. Secondly, because of all of that extra money that has been pumped into the economy, some of that has spilled over into house prices. So here's a graph of house prices, and house prices go up, so this is an index. It just means that in 2011, let's say the average price of a house in New Zealand is 150. 150 watt, you might say. Well, we don't really have a unit, it's just so that we can compare that 150 in 2011 is now 300. So basically the prices of houses in New Zealand on average have doubled in nine years. And this last year was a big jump, 15%. So these are the consequences of the work of the government and the civil service. So there's the treasurer, the, the Minister of Finance, Grant Robertson, and the secretary and CEO of the treasury, Coralie McLeish, who's been in the job not long. She's come to us from the public health system in Australia. So they did great work through the subsidies and other initiatives to keep workers connected to their jobs through the crisis. I think we can all say they have done a good job, but there are consequences. The increase in public debt is constraining government spending. There'll be announcements this afternoon about where the government is prioritising in this year's budget. And the rise in house prices has put further pressure on people who do not already own their own home. So that's been our response. So to conclude, we've come a long way since 1933. We, we know more about how our economies behave, about that circular flow, and about what we have to do to keep people connected to their jobs and to keep firms surviving, not going down in a downward spiral through the crisis. And with the arrival of vaccines, the hope is that the crisis will come to its conclusion over the, the next 12 to 24 months. That would be good news. Quite, quite better than we did in 1933. Nevertheless, we have to be honest with ourselves. We are currently living in hard times. And the hard times are not being evenly shared. So families have lost their jobs. 
just like my grandfather, and families are operating businesses that have lost their customers. That was my grandfather's story in 1940. And those families are struggling. And my lesson from within my own family is that it was the local community who helped them through the crisis. People like ourselves, and that's still important in 2021. Kua mutu that finishes my talk for today. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, ki ora tātou katoa. That is you, that is you. May you and I, all of us together, enjoy well-being. You've been listening to Professor Paul Dalziel from Lincoln University speaking at the 12th Annual Regional Refugee Forum hosted by the Canterbury Refugee Resettlement and Resource Centre.